With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 158. It is tentatively titled, Invest Like a Cockroach. I'll probably change it, but that's the working title for now as I record. Like many of you, I took a high school physics class that included an exercise in plotting the course of the Earth around the sun using Kepler's laws of planetary motion. It was one of the only instances I recall in high school using math to solve a useful problem besides perhaps doing story problems on some math test. What my physics teacher neglected to mention, though, was while a student could plot the course of one planet around the sun and determine where it was at any point in time, once two or more planets were added, even the greatest scientists in history, such as Isaac Newton, were unable to determine where three planets would be in the future based on their current position and velocity. It turns out this three-body problem cannot be solved using standard mathematics. In his book, The End of Theory, Richard Bookstaber writes, quote, The three-body problem illustrates how easy it is to run into computational irreducibility. It seems it can't be solved analytically. There is no apparent shortcut, no mathematical equation that can tell you the trajectory. In general, if you want to know where the planets will end up down the road, you have to ride along with them as they trace their paths, either in practice or simulation. What is amazing about that is there isn't any randomness when it comes to planetary motion. The relevant variables are the planet's masses, the distance between them, and their velocity. Yet scientists have only discovered 16 special cases, most of them recently using supercomputers where the planet's motions fit a pattern that allows for their future positioning to be accurately predicted. Most of the time, as Bookstaber points out, if you start the three planets on a course, they will follow complex and apparently random trajectories that finally end with one of the planets escaping the gravitational pull of the others. William Stanley Jevons, an English economist and logician, was one of the first academics in the mid-19th century to apply mathematical shortcuts to understand the economy. Despite his efforts, he also recognized there was a problem in using math when it came to the human interactions that drive the economy. He wrote, if we are to apply scientific method to morals, we must have a calculus of moral effects, a kind of physical astronomy investigating mutual perturbations of individuals. But as astronomers have not fully solved the problem of three gravitating bodies, where shall we have a solution of the problem of three moral bodies? Humans are changeable. They learn, grow, and make decisions based on emotion and context, how they feel given what is going on in their lives at any given moment. 
Economic models, on the other hand, are based on logic and require humans to act in consistent ways from one person to the next and from one time period to the next, because that is what is required for the mathematics to work. Bookstaber writes, it is a deeply held conviction within economics that our world can be reduced to models that are founded on the solid ground of axioms, plumbed by deductive logic into rigorous universal mathematical structures. Economists think they have things figured out, but our economic behavior is so complex. Our interactions are so profound that there is no mathematical shortcut for determining how they will evolve. The only way to know what the results of these interactions will be is to trace out the path over time. We essentially must live out our lives to see where they will go. There is no formula that allows us to fast forward to find out what the result will be. The world cannot be solved. It has to be lived. That, that last sentence, the world cannot be solved. It has to be lived, is my favorite sentence from this book by Bookstaber. In fact, this was, this was probably, I know this was the favorite book I read this year and perhaps the last couple of years because it's so eloquently described a lot of the principles I've taught over the past couple of years on the podcast. When it comes to the economy, financial markets, and our own lives, there is no way to know or predict what is going to happen next month, a year from now, three or even five years from now. Bookstaber writes, fundamentally, we don't know where we are going, and we don't know who we will be when we get there. If we change with our experiences, and and if we cannot anticipate those experiences or how they will change us, if we must live out our life in order to know it, then a central underpinning of economics is ripped away. Economics tries to simplify things in order so that the math works. The models are simplified. Humans are considered rational, and in reality, they're not. Bookstaber describes this unknowing as radical uncertainty. The world is full of surprises, outcomes and events that we didn't anticipate. So how do we proceed in the face of such uncertainty? I can think of two things that we can do. One is build reserves and slack in in our lives and in our financial lives. The second is to rely on simple rules of thumb to navigate the world. I've talked about both of those in earlier episodes. Let me give you an example, though, in terms of building reserves and slack. When I first moved to Idaho, I was fascinated by the concept of water rights, as I had never lived in an arid location. I grew up in Ohio where there was plenty of rain, and and we didn't have, at least as far as I know, we didn't have water rights. But when I came to Idaho about 15 years ago, I learned of a principle called first in time, first in right. That meant downstream users of a water source had priority over upstream irrigators if the downstream users had settled in the area earlier and registered and maintained their use of the water. So first in time, first in right. And this is a legal doctrine that came out of the gold rush where whoever showed up first to pan for gold had first access to the water, even if they shifted the water or moved it or transported to a different location. Irrigation water in my area comes from surface water, that flows through a system of rivers, canals, and reservoirs that are refreshed from annual mountain snowfall. The amount of water in the reservoirs is closely monitored with excess water in good years held over until the following year. 
The other source of water is the Snake River Aquifer that is accessed via pumps and wells. The aquifer consists of groundwater that flows through porous basalt and other sediment. Now, Idaho uses more, and I didn't even realize this until this week, Idaho uses more water per capita than any other state in the United States, mostly due to all of the irrigation. Now, in the last few years, there's been a great deal of concern about reduced levels of water in the aquifer. While lower levels are partially due to drought, they're also due to more efficient use of water. There are two primary methods of irrigation in Idaho, sprinkler systems and gravity-based systems in which farmers inundate fields with water and let it flow from one side to the next. This is known as flood irrigation. In 1890, Idaho had 217,000 acres of irrigated farmland, all of which used gravity-based flood irrigation systems. In 1995, there were 4.1 million acres irrigated in Idaho. 40% were flood irrigated, and the remainder used sprinklers. By 2013, the number of irrigated acres in Idaho had fallen from 4.1 million down to 3.5 million, but only 22% were flood irrigated. So less and less acreage is flood irrigated. The advantage of sprinkler systems is they are more efficient in terms of the amount of water used by the crop compared to the amount of water applied. There's just less wasted water. Yet much of that excess water from flood irrigation is what recharged the aquifer, allowing it to be accessed by pumps using used for sprinkler system. So you had all this flood irrigation with a lot of excess water flowing into the ground, recharging the aquifer. But as farmers became more efficient, were able to use sprinkler systems, irrigation pipes, pulling directly from the aquifer and less from, from canals, that didn't recharge the aquifer and now it, it, it's dropping. So since 2009, the state has instituted a recharge program where it allows excess water to flow and seep back into the aquifer. I'm reading a fascinating book by David Owen. It's called Where the Water Goes, and it's about Western water rights, and he focuses on the Colorado River. He had an interesting paragraph. He says, Waste, paradoxically, is kind of a reservoir. If the residents of a suburb routinely water their lawns, they can stop during a drought. But once they've replaced their Bermuda grass with cacti and gravel, and once the water that formerly ran through sprinklers has been redirected to bathrooms and kitchens and brand new subdivisions, the system not only is spread across more water users, but it is also more vulnerable in dry periods because it contains less slack. When you increase the human utility of a gallon of water, you also increase the human impact of using that gallon. Less slack in the system. It is, it is much more optimized, less waste. But when things get tight, that can cause the system to break down. In our financial lives, we can navigate radical uncertainty by holding reserves and building slack. The, the primary way that, that I can think of is financially is having emergency savings, having some cash. It means not becoming too illiquid or overly aggressive in our investing. Bookstaber writes, During a crisis, what matters is not relative value, the subtleties of relative expected earnings or constrictions in the supply chain. 
What matters is liquidity and risk. People dump risky and illiquid assets, and there is a flight to quality toward assets that are liquid and less risky. And based on context, sometimes they dump liquid assets also. We saw that in the 2008 financial crisis because the the various financial banks or the, the investment banks and other corporations that needed liquidity couldn't get a good bid on illiquid assets. They were dumping liquid assets. So some of the, the biggest mega cap companies fell more than, than some of the small cap holdings. So we can hold cash and perhaps even some long-term bonds. Long-term bonds, there's this flight to quality and the interest rates tend to fall during crisis and they tend to do well. So by holding both of those, that provides a margin of safety to protect us against crisis and to put us in a position to take advantage of opportunities that arise. If, if an investor is too illiquid and doesn't have cash and, and there's crisis, which means lower valuations and opportunities when it's time to step back in, they're not able to do that. Bookstaber says a financial crisis is an emergent phenomenon. And he describes an emergent phenomenon. He says it occurs when the overall effect of individuals' actions is different from what individuals are doing. The actions of the system differ from the actions of the agents that comprise the system. I saw an example of this the other day. Sometimes if you're in a long line of traffic, somebody might just gradually step on the brake, just just a little bit of caution, but that cascades. In fact, I saw this cascading because LePro and I were in separate cars. She was a number of cars ahead, and we're talking on the phone, and she said, we're braking. And then a few minutes later, or a few seconds later, I was braking. But just that little bit of braking tends to cascade through the system to where you can actually have a standstill traffic, just traffic standstill, a huge traffic jam, just based on little taps of the brake of drivers well ahead in the road. That's an emergent phenomena. The, the standstill traffic was not the intent uh, of the driver. That's a systematic effect. Another example is stampedes. And actions of individuals can cause stampedes. And he gives the example uh, of the Hajj, H-A-J-J, which if I recall, I don't have right here in front of me from the book, was in India, but it's huge stampedes. So he goes on, he says, the financial crisis is an emergent phenomena that has broken through the market's containment vehicles. As in the Hajj stampedes, no one decided to precipitate the crisis. And indeed, at the level of the individual firms, the decisions are generally made to take prudent action to avoid the costly effects of a crisis. But what is locally stable can become globally unstable. And that's a great example of a complex adaptive system where you have the, you know, within nature, crises tend to be localized, but in the financial markets and in the political markets, actions and mistakes by individuals or even prudent actions can cascade throughout the system and lead to global instability. He goes on, we cannot enumerate the states of nature that will arise, much less assign them probabilities. Thus, the world is different for each new crisis, different markets, financial instruments, crowded strategies, view, concerns, context. So even as we look to our past experience for context, we look to the inaccessibility of future experience for uncertainty. We don't know what, where the next crisis is going to occur. Back in 
episode, I believe it was 154, we talked about clues for the next financial crisis and, and, and panic, and I gave you some things to look at. But ultimately, the next crisis could be spawned by something completely different. And that's why we need this reserve, this margin of safety, this slack in our financial life. Before we talk about simple rules of thumb, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. So this past week, I downloaded an iPhone app and I have been timing myself to see how much time I spend on different activities, such as producing the podcast, the post-production, doing YouTube videos, the post-production, writing, working with members of Money for the Source Plus, providing email support and things of that sort, because I wanted to see how I'm spending my time. But here's the thing I found, though. Once you start measuring your time, that can actually change your behavior. And George Soros, who's a billionaire hedge fund investor, came up with a theory called reflexivity, where he says observations of the economy lead to ideas that change behavior, which in turn changes the economy itself. As Bookstaber puts it, it's self-referential. What we observe We change, and what we change alters how we observe. So there's some circular logic there. So the fact that I'm measuring myself is changing my behavior in terms of how, what I measure. Well, the economy sort of works the same way in terms of if investors, for example, if we believe markets are efficient, then that belief will change the way we invest 
which in turn will change the nature of the markets in which we are participating. And we've seen that as more and more investors. I I heard a a report from Jim Grant the other day where he said Vanguard said they're taking in a billion dollars a day into their fund system as people move more and more to passive investing. And that's certainly something we've talked about on the show. And, you know, will that impact markets? One thing that seems to be impacting it is just the extreme levels of low volatility. And I don't know if that's connected or not, but it's an example of how our behavior changes over time, the environment changes. And so the crisis that eventually will occur, and we don't know the timing, will probably be based on something else. It won't be the exact same thing that occurred in the internet bubble or in the 2008 financial crisis, although there'll probably be some signs as investors start to panic and rush toward for liquidity and and safety. So how do we how do we do that? Well, one is how do we manage it? One thing we do, as we talked about, is having some reservoir, having some slack in the system, having some cash set aside, having some things away from the financial system. Well, recently, a couple of weeks ago, we were down for uh, my son's graduation. And we were walking by his apartment, and there I've seen something I haven't seen before. I've seen ants on sidewalks before, and I've seen crowds of ants. But I have not seen the piles of ants facing off each other, not actually moving anywhere, just sort of there. And I I looked up on the Internet. It appears that what happens in the spring is some pavement ants tend to swarm when when winged males and queens leave the nest and they congregate to mate. And then they they have, I guess, all their followers there, and eventually – the newly mated queens will move to a new nesting location. But there's a lot of, of there was huge congregations of ants. And, and my son said, I can get them to scatter. And he blew a little bit on them. And sure enough, they scattered. And he said, I don't want to do it a whole lot because it disturbs their thing. But that's interesting. You blow on ants and they start to move. And Bookstaver gives an a, example of another insect that moves in a very similar He says species that have existed for hundreds of millions of years can be considered de facto having a better rule set than those that have been prolific in one epoch but become extinct as crisis emerged. And he gives the example of the cockroach. The cockroach has survived through many unforeseeable changes, writes Bookstaber, jungles turning to deserts, flat lands giving way to urban habitat, predators of all type coming and going over the course of 300 million years. This unloved creature owes its record of survival to a singularly basis and seemingly suboptimal mechanism. The cockroach simply scurries away when when little hairs on its legs vibrates from puffs of air, just like ants, puff of air, they scatter. He goes on, puffs that might signal an approaching predator like you. That is all it does. It doesn't hear It doesn't smell. It ignores a wide set of information about the environment that you would think an optimal system would take into account. The cockroach has a rule of thumb. When its legs vibrate, it runs. When ants do the same thing, when they feel the vibration in the air, they run. We as investors should have similar rules of thumb. The world is way too complex to build a very detailed model of of what we think is going to happen and how we will react. And I've talked about rules of thumb way back, I think it was episode in the early 30s. I don't have it right 
front of me, but the whole episode was on rules of thumb. And I talked about the importance of being diversified, having different portfolio drivers in terms of things that generate the return, which means at times there should be something in a portfolio that's not working out very well. Because if something's not working, that's what diversification is. It means something is doing well, something's not doing well, and hopefully that will reverse. So we have different portfolio drivers. We should have pockets of independence away from the financial system. So not all our money in investable, publicly traded assets. We should have some money in cash. We should have some money that is in, let's say, real estate, perhaps gold coins or something that's not tied to the financial system. That's a simple rule of thumb. We don't know what particular asset is going to do well at any given point in time. And then what I do in my investing, and I've talked about this, and we talk about this at, 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 on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, is I do a monthly investment conditions report. Not because I know what's going to happen, but I've simplified the information as much as possible for some signals or clues that suggest a, a regime change is about to happen, that the risk of a market sell-off are high. And, and the foremost is valuation. And you can use valuation in your investing. Valuation is a great signal. When things are cheap, there's more opportunity to earn a higher rate of return as that valuation adjusts and becomes more valued or more highly valued or at least fairly valued over time. Now, it's tough in an environment like now because most things are fair to richly valued. And, and so now we have to look at other areas such as economic trends. What, what is the likelihood of a recession? And during periods when PMI, which is a measure I use, this is a measure, these are business surveys done around the world, when they, a high percentage of countries have PMI below 50, that suggests the risk of an economic slowdown is great. And during economic slowdowns, that's where the risk of a financial crisis is higher because corporate earnings fall off in a recession and markets fall off pretty sharply. Typical recession, when the U.S. is included, the U.S. stock market or the global stock market has fallen 40 to 50 percent. I'm also looking at the fear and greed in the marketplace. What about the trends? What about the rate of change in momentum? How, how zealous are investors to pile into assets? And so these are just simple measures. It's not the most complex model in the world. A member of Money for the Rest of Plus, you know I rate these things red, green, or yellow, and then we make a judgment call. And what do I do with that information? I invest like a cockroach. When they're all red, I run, I flee, I increase the amount of cash that I'm holding, increase my margin of safety. I don't ever go or rarely go completely to cash because you can never know without certainty. But I raise my amount of cash and raise my, my liquidity when things look like there's a high risk of re regime change or a market sell-off. Now, again, you can't time the 5% moves, the 10% moves. I'm looking for potential drawdowns of stocks of 20% or more, which typically come with periods of high valuations, with slowing economies, and a great deal of zealousness among investors. So that's what I'm looking for. And I become like a cockroach and I, and I flee and, and I, raise, I raise some cash. So that's this week's episode, How to Invest Like a Cockroach. 
You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. That's awesome. You can sign up for my insider's guide and I'll email those links and show notes to you on a weekly basis along with a summary article. And again, you can sign up for that on the homepage or if you're a US-based listener, just text the word insider to the number 44222. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.